Good evening. And so, how many in the room have been all four chapters of Philippians? You've been here. All right. How about and all six chapters of, uh, of Ephesians? And all six chapters of Galatians? Really? And think you'll be here for all four chapters of Colossians? Wow, people get a life. Wow. Jeez. Okay. All right. Two weeks in a row, I brought my own glasses, so we're good. Okay, I'm getting good at this stuff up here. All right, let's pray. Let's start. Let's dig into the material. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you, especially for all the hands, Lord, the several that have been here uh, through, you know, this will be our third book and then our fourth, and, and God, it's, it's your word, and I thank you for their love for your word, their dedication. I'm sure there's those online that could raise their hand as well, and Lord, these are your people that love you, love this book. And pray, Lord, that uh, just tonight would be a great night of finishing up uh, this wonderful letter of Paul's. So, Lord, we pray that you're lifted up, glorified, and honored through it all. Pray that everybody could see Jesus, your son, more clearly through this study, and that you would use our time together for your eternal purposes to be fulfilled in our lives. We ask uh, not our will to be done in any of this, but your will be done. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Alrighty. Now, <clears throat> sooner we start on this, the better. I actually got up to five pages of notes on this one for this short chapter. Um, so, <clears throat> now, as Paul finished chapter three with this idea of transformation into our glorious body, uh, we're picking up from there as we pick up on chapter four now. Uh, with the word therefore. So every time we hit that word therefore, we got to remember what we just read. And yes, exactly. And so um, he just told us our citizenship is in heaven and that we're going to be, our lowly bodies will be transformed and be therefore conformed to his glorious body. And he's going to subdue all things to himself. And because of that reason, he says in verse one, therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. So as he mentions these really good things about being transformed into a glorious body, fulfilling the Lord's will for our lives, um, he says, listen, there's a call for you in that, and that is to stand fast, immovable, okay? There's lots of things, there's lots of people, there's lots of ideologies that would have you move off of your stance on Christ and therefore not fulfill all the promises that are intended by God for the believer. So um, here as he talks about, as he talks about uh, calling them his crown. Now we get different words for crown in, the, in Paul's letters. Uh, sometimes we get this word diadema, which is like a diadem. It's a, it's a crown for a, a sovereign, a ruler, a king. Uh, that's not the crown he's mentioning here. He says, you're my Stephanos. It's a, it's a victor's crown. It's the, it's the uh, wreath they would wear around their heads when they won a, an Olympic event, a sporting event. So Paul's saying, you're like my victory crown. That's what he is calling them. 
So the Philippian believers were to Paul a crown of victory, just like he mentions to the Corinthian crowd that they are to him a love letter. So we see Paul using these different things to express how he feels about certain groups. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I want you to hear what he says about um, the Corinthians, where he calls the Philippians uh, his victory crown. To the Corinthians, he says, do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written on hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So, Paul sees those who convert to Christ and are following Christ. He says, now you have become a letter of Christ because you're the one going out into the world giving the message, okay? And I think I've said in this very setting before that uh, I think we can rightly say that there's actually five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Believer. And most people read the Believer before they decide if they want to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. You're a letter that's being sent out. And you're not written with ink. You're written with... um, You're not written uh, with ink, but with the Spirit. You're not written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that are people's hearts. Okay? So I don't know what more you would need to hear to say that you're important, that you matter, that the day you lived today was really, really important that you showed up where you showed up. You have a message. God is using you as his tablet of information to bring people hope and security and everlasting life. I mean, there's doctors and lawyers and plumbers and firemen, and that's very, very important. But this is the stuff that's really, really, really important. And he says, it's you. Okay? So to the Corinthians, he says, you're a letter that's being sent out. To the Philippians, he's saying, listen, what you are as a church, who you're being as a church, how you're walking out the faith, he's about to commend them for various ways they've been serving him. He says, you're, you're a crown of victory. You're the proof that we win. You're the proof that um, this message transforms life. You're, you're that your transformed life is indeed that winning message to people that need to know that in Christ they win. You are that. To the Corinthians, you're, you're a letter. So in the light of the good news of our glorification that Paul finished chapter 3 with, he, said, he now encourages us to stand fast in the Lord. He's saying there's a lot to lose by not standing fast. There's a whole lot to lose by not staying consistent uh, with your faith. Um, Again, I think I told you, uh, the two words that really have been imprinted on my heart to talk about discipleship, to talk about walking this faith out, are the words believing loyalty. Believing in the sense of this ongoing action verb that never has an off switch to it. This constant believing loyalty. One of the ways I put it to students today is 
as I picture believing loyalty, it's almost like I picture these two soccer teams and they each have their own uniform to say who's with them and who's against them, right? If you're wearing what I'm wearing, you're with me in, in goals and that we're trying to achieve and we're trying to win. If you're against me, you're wearing something different and they're all wearing something different that we can recognize who they are and all that and they're opposing everything we're trying to do. Now, you're believing loyalty, which means day-by-day decisions, both for your own personal growth and for your witness to other people, your decisions in that day is kind of like passing the soccer ball to the proper people. You're giving them to your teammates. You're you're passing the ball to the people who are wearing your uniform. So you're believing, that's loyal, right? I'm not going to kick the ball to the other team. That would be disloyal. That would hurt our chances. I'm going to keep on kicking it to my teammates, and then I'm going to attack the opponent's goal with our our shots and stuff like that, not my own goal. So the ones that are like-minded with me, wearing the same jersey as me, we're going to be in this cooperating loyalty to each other for the ultimate victory. And we have an enemy, and they're working against all of this, okay? So we're going to strategize. We're going to stay disciplined. We're going to exercise our bodies to do this even better. Paul uses all of that language to talk about discipleship. Okay? So now if I kick the ball to the other team, I'm not in believing loyalty anymore. I'm actually opposing it. And if I'm not for my team, like if I just say I quit, I'm not playing. Well, Jesus said, listen, you're for me or you're against me. There is no neutral ground here. Okay, you're either for me, you're participating in the victory, and the other two options you have, which is doing nothing or opposing me, he says they're the same thing. It's all opposing me. Okay, you're for me, you're against me. So what does this uniform look like then? If we're wearing the same uniform, what is this uniform? Well, the Bible in the New Testament makes it very clear how we're to be clothed. We're all to be clothed the same way. And that clothing is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that he lived out faithfully for over 30 years, despite being tempted out of it face-to-face by Satan himself for 40 days in the wilderness. So his believing loyalty to his father now transfers to our believing loyalty to him on this winning team, and we have to be clothed with his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like if you try to wear your own uniform, then you're behaving exactly like Adam and Eve in the garden where they took the fig leaves and tried to cover their shame and guilt their own way uh, with these fig leaves, and God did not approve or accept of that. Instead, he slaughtered an animal, took the skin of that animal, and clothed them with his covering, and that was accepted as a covering for Adam and Eve, just like Jesus taught in the parable of the wedding feast. He says, all these people are invited to the wedding feast. Many, many rejected. Those that accepted it come into the wedding feast, which is certainly an analogy of going to heaven. And then there was one person there not dressed properly. And the one that was not dressed properly, uh, the king said to throw him out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So why, just because he wasn't dressed properly, is he excluded and even punished? Because he's trying to come in with his own personal righteousness of clothing rather than the righteousness that's provided to him through the king uh, to cover him in that righteousness. So that's kind of like a work salvation teaching being rejected there. You know, I'm going to come in on my own goodness, my own righteousness and all that. 
they're excluded. You can come in by faith saying, I can't do it. My righteousness is like filthy rags and all of that. And then you're covered with the, the righteousness of Christ. So it's walking in, believing, loyalty, um, which, which because that word believing that I'm using is this ongoing action verb that doesn't stop. That means as you consider how you do your jobs, how you do your marriage, how you do raising children, how you do college, those, your, the team you're on, that, that team plays into how you make those decisions. So like what I presented to 17-year-olds today, if you can imagine, I go, what that would look like for you is this. It's like, wow, that pretty girl really likes me, but she's not a believer, so can't date her. What? That's it? Yeah. Believing loyalty to your team. Why? Because if that relationship works out and it leads to marriage, now you're breaking the command to not be unequally yoked, right? Well, why can't, well maybe she'll get saved through the marriage. <laughs> well, maybe you'll walk away because of the marriage, you know? Um, when I do marriage counseling, a lot of times when there's a believer and a non-believer and children involved, one of the great complaints of the believer is the kids automatically default to the non-believing parent. Why? It's a lot easier to not believe. You don't get up in the early on Sunday mornings, right? You don't have a book you're supposed to be reading and all that. So why do I have to go to church if dad doesn't go to church? And now what's the believing mom to say? Well, daddy's going to hell. I don't want you to go to hell, you know? <laughs> That's not going to go over very well, right? Okay? So, um, so we're told to not have light and darkness try to become one together because that relationship has never ever worked um you know we came into this room today it was dark and it's not like we turned the light on and the light said hey i'll take half the room you take half the room no the light says whenever i show up i dominate and i win and i conquer okay so um, um so the, there, there is no fellowship of light and darkness now In, well, I took way more time on that than I had planned. And <clears throat> so what I want to talk about also uh, in this verse is, you know, Paul's saying, listen, I just told you about glorification. I just told you you have a destiny in glory. You have to stand fast in the faith because that's what's at stake is every dream you have of joy and peace and health and satisfaction and love and all of those things, those things are prepared for you for all eternity. So stand fast in the world that's fallen. In a fallen world, you have to stand fast in there. You're going to have opponents. You're going to have enemies. They're going to believe they're right. They're not going to like that you think they're wrong. They're going to try to sway you otherwise. All this stuff is going to happen. So you have to stand fast. Now, what exactly is at stake? So when you're wondering what's at stake with the decisions you make and you're believing loyalty to the Lord, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with that. Well, first of all, same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, notice the language Paul uses in the first two verses. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if, if, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed, there's a believer, but they believed in vain, okay? 
You, you had this belief, but it's all in vain because you didn't hold fast. He says, if you do hold fast, then the word that I preached to you will come to its fruition. So what does Paul immediately say after he says this? You've got to hold fast to this word. He says, because <clears throat> I delivered deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And then it says, and that he was seen, and it lists a whole bunch of people that saw the risen Christ. In other words, there's eyewitness testimony to this. Okay, we call it a faith-based religion, but I got to tell you, God gave us so much evidence, it's almost hard to credit it to faith at, at this point. It's simply following the evidence and being logical and reasonable. Okay? You have to be illogical or unreasonable to not believe. Isaiah chapter 1 God uses 17 verses to say in Isaiah 1, here's the depth of your depravity and sin. And then in verse 18, he says, but come, let us reason together. I want you to be reasonable. I don't want you to leave your reason. I want you to walk in your reason. Okay, so be reasonable. He says, though your skin be, skin, though your sin be as scarlet, is as scarlet, it shall be white as snow, right? I will cleanse the stain of your sin. Okay, and what's, what's, what's his declaration before he says he'll do that? You need to be reasonable. Just be reasonable. Okay, you have failed. And this is where people go, I don't like hearing that I failed. Well, then if you can't enter into reality, it's going to be hard to give you other reality that you'll believe and trust in. We have to start in reality so that you can receive the reality that you need a Savior. And Jesus is pretty good at that stuff. All right, so then as we turn further into that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35, he's going to say, hey, somebody's going to say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Oh, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive until it dies. Do you know he's not just talking about farming seeds right now? He's saying, you're not going to be made alive until you die. You think you're alive now? You have no idea what life is really about. Wait till you die and experience the life that's been prepared for you. And what you sow, you don't sow the body that shall be, but you sow mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. You guys got to start wondering how these little seeds, like you can fit on your finger, become your dinner, right? Who put all those nutrients in the dirt? Like of all places to put it, right? You think he'd put it in some nice something, but it says not the dirt that you're walking on, that stuff will turn your seeds into your meals. And the very necessities you have for vitamins and minerals and all of that, that's going to come out of the dirt and you're going to eat it and it's going to have a texture. So I'm going to give you teeth that are perfect for grinding it up. I'm going to give you saliva to soften it. I'm going to give you a propulsion system to get it down into your gut. I'm going to give you digestive juices to break it all down. I'm going to give your body a wisdom that says what's nutritious and good, I'm going to put into your bloodstream. And what's not, I'm going to give you a waste system to get rid of. Isn't evolution amazing? My goodness. Now, somebody's going to put me on social media and say, isn't evolution amazing? Bill Shot. That's how this stuff goes, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, all right. So he goes on to say, listen, um, 
verse 40, there's celestial bodies and there's terrestrial bodies. The glory of the celestial is one kind of glory. The glory of the terrestrial is another kind of glory. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. And one star differs from another star in glory. Then, he's, then all of that, can you believe he says, so is the resurrection from the dead. Wait, all that glory of all those stars and sun, everything, you're saying, so are we who are going to rise from the dead? He says, yes. Your body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. Your body's been sown in dishonor. It's going to be raised in glory. Look what we're trading in and what we're getting. Corruption for incorruption, dishonor for glory, weakness for power, natural body for spiritual body. There's a natural, there's a spiritual. And then he says, but the spiritual is not first, but this natural, then the spiritual. Okay. So in other words, hold fast to your faith because this is what's coming. This is what's coming. Um, last thing I want to say about holding fast, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 14 the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, and this just has to do with the priesthood of Christ. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Because we have a great high priest, he's passed through the heavens. He says, because that's our high priest, not a Caiaphas, not an Aaron, not a other one. We have Jesus as our high priest, he's passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. What you confess to be true as a Christian, hold fast to that confession. Why? Because we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So in all those weaknesses where you might be tempted not to hold fast, he says this, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. What's another reason to hold fast? Because everything that might make you seem like it's too hard to hold fast to this faith, he says, Jesus can sympathize with you because he was tested in every one of those ways. Okay, so the lady at work that drives you nuts for being a Christian, he didn't have a lady at work to drive nuts. He had Satan in the wilderness driving him nuts. He's been through it. He's done it. All right, so already we're on verse 2. All right, verse 2. <laughs> if I need to slow down, please let me know. All right, he says, I implore Judea and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, where is Paul when he's writing this? He's in prison. What's he awaiting? Sentencing. What might the sentences be? Death or freedom? Which one does he prefer? Why? Death brings you to Jesus. Do you understand that about death? Brings you to Jesus. Okay, now, there's a problem. We have people who have lost their unity, lost their like-mindedness. Okay, Judea and Syntyche. Um, and a lack of unity cannot reflect Christ. Anything that lacks unity cannot reflect Christ because Christ is a part of a perfect unity in the Trinity, isn't he? And he's calling us to that unity. He's calling us to that like-mindedness. 
okay? So the lack of unity cannot reflect Christ, so we have to work out our lacks of unity. We've got to work out our divisions. Christian unity includes helping those individuals within the corporate body who lack unity with each other to try to find the unity that exists in Christ. So that's what Paul's calling for. Verse 4. So then he says, um, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, this says so much. When we start with rejoicing, okay, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. When we start with rejoicing, gentleness and peace accompany our decision to be joyful in the Lord. These are what come together in the package. Okay, so when we rejoice in the Lord, gentleness and peace accompany that decision. Bad things that seemed big will seem small, and good things that seem small will seem big. In other words, God right-sizes things for us when we allow sin to enter our mind, and therefore the twisting of sin is that a little thing that should be easily dealt with, you see as this big thing that's creating your anxiousness and anxiety that Paul is saying you should not be walking in. And things that are good, you go, okay, well, I'm not going to really look at that. I'm going to look at these bad things over here. But that's a good thing that God was going to use to really bless your life that you just minimized. So you're not right-sizing the things that are in your life. And Paul says here, listen, start with rejoicing in the Lord. Okay, so when do you start your day? Right out of bed, right? So when should you start rejoicing in the Lord? Because now the right and proper perspectives on the thing that are coming to your day you'll receive those proper perspectives. And I think what you're going to find, you know, just like the old experiment, if somebody says 10 things about you and nine of them are great and one of them isn't, what's the one you're talking about the rest of the day? The one that isn't, right? So you make the one-tenth into the nine-tenths, or if not the ten-tenths for some of us, right? It's not right-sized anymore. And, and there's no spirit of rejoicing with Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, I think I've said it here, I think it's the most underestimated word in the Christian vocabulary. The power that comes with a thankful heart to heal, to heal anxieties, to heal depression, to heal frustration. And when is the time to be thankful? It's all the time. Okay? You, nobody has ever lived a life where there wasn't something to be thankful for. Okay? Even if it's your moment of death. Thank you, God, that I'm about to meet you face to face, right? There's, you're never without opportunity for thankfulness. And when you're thankful, you're recognizing the truth of the existence of God because he never leaves any of his children hopeless or without something to be thankful for or something to, that gives them hope and peace and, and patience and joy and all of those things. There's always, those are the things that define you. Okay, that's why Paul can say, I might be getting my head chopped off, but I'm trying not to get my hopes up here, right? That's what he's saying in this letter, because he knows Jesus. So our goal is to try to know Jesus like Paul knows Jesus, so that things can become right-sized, 
Okay. <clears throat> now, this um, the peace. He says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Every time I see Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, I think back to a young lady I taught at Calvary years ago, shortly after graduation. I think she was at UF, but I know she was traveling south back home, got in a car wreck and died. And so we went to her memorial service, and I'll never, ever, ever forget her mother just within a week of her daughter's death, standing before a full house in the sanctuary, uh, everybody grieving the death of this young girl. And I'll never forget her saying, hey, I know I'm going to cry my eyes out for the rest of my life, but I also know this, that I'm experiencing a peace that I cannot explain to you. I cannot explain the peace that I have. I know things are going to be okay. It doesn't mean I'm okay with my daughter's death. I am very crushed by her death, and I think I'll cry every day for the rest of my life. But there's a peace that's going beyond my understanding that I am experiencing from the Lord, okay? So that was her testimony days after the death of her daughter. Here, this says, the peace of God is going to guard your heart. That's what's happening with her. Her heart's being guarded. It's the constant message of your daughter's with me, your daughter's going to be okay, everything's going to be fine. Now I want you to contrast that with the most difficult memorial service I ever did. And I hope, I hope it stays that way. I hate to think one gets harder than this one. But it was a drowning victim, a six-year-old girl that drowned. And we were at the graveside, and I gave some closing remarks at the graveside. And so they had the little tent set up, they had the chairs, and then... Um, you know, in the front was her casket uh, over the, the grave that they're going to lower in. And when it came time to lower the grave, the mom just a, a switch flipped and she went crazy and she tried to jump in the hole with her daughter saying, my baby needs me, my baby needs me, my baby needs me. And it took these men just grabbing her shoulders and holding her from jumping into this hole. And they were so violently pulling her back that the chairs that were set up for the people, I had to start like throwing them aside so they had room to keep pulling her back. And while I'm doing that, I kept trying to say so she could hear and understand, but I, I really think she lost the presence. You know, she wasn't really with us. But I was saying, your daughter's not there. She's with the Lord. Your daughter's not there. She's with the Lord. You go into that hole, you're going in alone. She's not there. It's just her bones, okay? Her, your daughter is with the Lord, okay? So no peace, no understanding, right? Versus I know I'm going to be okay. I know everything's fine, okay? Um, Paul says we do not grieve like those who have no hope. There's a different grief for a believer. The, 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 the first girl's mom said, I know I will cry probably every day the rest of my life. There is a grief for the unbeliever, but it's not the same as a grief of those with no hope. It's a different grief. Uh, one has a comfort to it. One just doesn't. Okay? So, so Paul's saying, listen, your heart will be guarded by a peace which surpasses all understanding. 
It'll guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus, your very high priest who's been tempted in every way. He's passed through the heavens. He's highly qualified for the job. He's going to be a perfect and a great high priest to you through all of these things. Verse 8. Actually, I have quotes for verse 7, but I'm worried about time. But I'm going to read them anyways. Um, Charles Spurgeon said, he's talking about this quarrel, the quarrel between these two women, and he says this. He says, I'm glad that we don't know what the quarrel was about. I'm usually thankful for ignorance on such subjects. But as a cure for disagreements, the apostle says, rejoice in the Lord always. Charles Spurgeon saw this as a cure for disagreements. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. He said, people who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense or to take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by little troubles which naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Joy in the Lord is the cure for all discord. Joy in the Lord is a cure for all discord. He goes on to say, What a gracious God we serve who makes delight into a duty and who commands us to rejoice. He makes delight into a duty and commands us all to rejoice. Should we not at once be obedient to such a command as this? It is intended that we should be happy. It is intended that we should be happy. And Paul says in here, it's because the Lord is at hand, and that should always set our perspective in all matters. The Lord is either at hand in the sense that he's our Emmanuel, he's our God with us, he's at hand, and it's also referring to his imminent return. He's at hand because when he teaches about his return, he really teaches nothing more than always be ready. There's never an inappropriate time for you to be ready for his imminent return. Verse 8 now. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And you're saying, that's what I do on social media all day, right? It's what I'm doing. No. I want you to think about the things that occupy our minds and the amount of time we allow them to be there. Okay, I've been quoting Spurgeon, quoting Spurgeon, and now I came up with this quote. It says, um, out of the outflow of the heart, our social media post speaks. And I wrote my name there because that's original with me. Let's see if it catches on, like Spurgeon. All right. So, out of the outflow of the heart, you know, the, the Bible says the mouth speaks, and, we, and one of our mouthpieces nowadays is social media, right? So, think about what, what Paul has taught us tonight. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, okay, whatever things are praiseworthy, okay, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are pure. Now, if you're to be thinking about those things Shouldn't you be somebody who's helping others to think about those same things? And I want, to, I want you to think about your biggest audience is your social media audience, okay? 
So what are you feeding them? What comes on your post that is now feeding them when you're under the direction of meditating on things that are pure and lovely of good report? Okay? Are you causing others to become anxious and angry and, 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 and bat battling other people and going to war and things like this? Okay? Um, I know Paul speaks of this in his last letter in 2 Timothy, but it's just now coming to me, so I don't know if I'll find it uh, impromptu like this, but I really hope I do because I want you to hear it. Uh, 2 Timothy, uh, let's see. 2 Timothy, I'm going to say 2. Oh, gosh. Uh, Yeah, so I think this is it. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. So is your social media presence leading to more ungodliness than if you never went on there? And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. In other words, the inspired apostle is not afraid to name drop those who do this wrong. <laughs> okay? He's not afraid to name drop those who are full of, uh, of idle babblings that increase to more ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection's already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The seal is this, the Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Okay, So a huge call to make sure you're not the source of or participant in idle babblings that increase ungodliness. It's a huge call in this day and age of social media. Okay. All right. I found it. That was really good. Okay. All right. Biblical meditation is the filling up of our mind with the things of God. When we fill our minds with, with, uh, when we fill our minds with this, our mind becomes our dispositions, right? Our countenance, our attitudes all flow from what we're filling our mind with. The proof of this is the very letter of Paul's that we're studying. God uses Paul while he's in prison awaiting sentencing to give us his magnum opus of joy. Okay, if anybody could start with idle babblings that increase ungodliness because he is not justly in jail... He's very much unjustly in jail, okay? So um, the proof of, of the sincerity and the wisdom of Paul is when he has every reason to not write this letter, he's writing us this letter. Paul's mind is so consumed on Jesus that not even these circumstances can put him in a bad mood. Let's look back at chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. What's Paul's mood as a prisoner? This is his mood. 
For I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also in Christ, so, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is by far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be the more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. He says, this is why I think God's going to have me live, because then I'm going to return to you, minister to you, and your joy will increase. And I think Jesus is going to make me wait to see him because he wants your joy to increase before he takes me. Okay. All right. Verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. All right. So here's a great incentive of the God of peace being with us. Paul says, here's how that'll happen. Okay. The things which you've learned and received. So there's your being a student, correct? I'm learning, I'm receiving. I'm learning, I'm receiving. I'm learning, I'm receiving. But it's more than that, especially for those of you who teach. Why? Because then he says, and the things that you heard and saw in me. Okay? So the teacher of mathematics does not have a compulsion on their soul to go and live righteously. Otherwise, people won't believe in math anymore. Correct? But the teacher of the things of God has a compulsion to live according to those teachings because otherwise those who have learned and they see that person living that life, it's going to affect how they believe and what they've learned. So, that, so, so you're, a, you're a letter again, written on hearts again. Okay. Now some may immediately think, well, what a killjoy to be, to be a Christian. I would say authentically walk out the Christian life and see if you can say that. See if you can say that. Okay. Um, I haven't had a drink in public. How long, hun? An hour. No. <laughs> I promise you it's been more than that. Okay. It's probably been years and years and years. Okay. Uh, probably pushing a couple decades at this point. So, um, why? Because it's a sin to drink? No. But because silly people like you will start going, I wonder how many he's had, right? And then there goes my witness because of that, correct? So what's more joyful for me, the drinking or the witness? It's literally the witness brings me much more joy. So why would I kill that, right? Why would I kill my own joy of that? Boy, is the devil going to tempt me now, right? After that. Okay, so it's not just learning and receiving, but it's also hearing and doing those things. Verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Now think of how selfish that sounds on the surface. He says, I'm rejoicing because your care for me has flourished. You almost picture him receiving all these gifts from him and will go, look at your care for me flourishing right now. But watch what Paul does with that. 
He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care but lacked opportunity. You know why they lacked opportunity to care for Paul before? Because he was a free man and could care for himself. So they didn't have opportunity to care for him. So he's saying, here's the beauty of being in jail. He says, you have an opportunity to care for me. And watch what he does for, with that now. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Even California state, right? <laughs> for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. And I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Can you imagine somebody saying, I learned how to be full? I learned how to be hungry. Why do you have to learn how to be full? There's a deadly sin called gluttony, isn't there? Which means I'm full, but because I get such joy in my mouth from my eating, I don't care what my body that's created by God says. I'm going to keep on shoving it down, right? Paul says, no, I learned how to be full, and it means more things than that. And I also learned how to be hungry. There's a way to be hungry. I learned how to be hungry. There's a relationship with Christ you're supposed to experience in your hunger. Now, he's not talking about like dinner's two hours late. He's talking about long stretches of time where because of ministry or what else, he's without food. He's been shipwrecked, floating in the sea. He's been other things. He's been hungry. Um, he says, so I learned how to both to abound and to suffer need. Now, before we go to the very famous verse 13, I want to say this. Paul is so endeared to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in his life. The sufficiency that Jesus brings into his life that he never finds himself in need outside of Christ. This is not seen in the fact that when Paul has no access to food that it comes to him miraculously. That's not what he's saying. But it means that when Paul is experiencing hunger or any other need or discomfort or challenge, he finds Christ sufficient time and again in those very moments. Think of Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's not making an oath to never want again. He's saying, no, what doesn't go together is the Lord's shepherding of you and you being a wanty person. He's saying, so because the Lord is my shepherd, my wants go away. I still have needs, but all my needs are met through the sufficiency of Christ Jesus. And because I'm getting my needs met through the sufficiency of Christ Jesus, now the wants of the flesh, the things that are just for show or for ego or for whatever, I don't have that in me anymore. Okay? So Paul says, I learned how to abound. So in other words, there's an abounding in Christ, but there's certainly a wrong way to abound. There's a way to abound that you sound like Rockefeller, when he was asked, how much is enough? He said, just a little more. There's no satisfaction in that life. Because guess what if he got a little more, he would say. I just need a little more. In other words, the Lord is not his shepherd. He shall continue with his wanting and his wanting. And the word that he won't use of himself is contentment or satisfaction. Okay? So... Paul's saying, listen, I'm learning these things through Jesus Christ. I know how to be hungry. I know how to suffer need. I know how to abound. I know how to be full. And then he says, 
because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, working at a high school, I remember early 2000s, I was coaching baseball, very good friends of mine are coaching football, soccer, everything else, and I'm seeing the verse they're putting on their practice shirts, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I'm going, you're telling kids, hey, I want you to make this shot, and I want you to know this, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. No. Okay. I promise you, most people in this room could beat Billy Graham in one-on-one in basketball. It's not about doing sports things through Christ who strengthens you. Paul's saying, I know how to go without food for the sake of Christ because I can do that through Christ who will strengthen me. I know how to be shipwrecked. I know how to be beaten. I know how to stand fast in this faith no matter what comes my way because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It has nothing to do with your ability to put a ball through a hoop or score a touchdown or anything like that. To, to tell kids that, to have that verse on an athletic shirt, to me is to be biblically illiterate and to be very misleading, okay? Have that kid go without lunch for a week and then say, now you can wear Philippians 4.13. Did you learn how to be hungry? Did you learn how to take that hunger and fast and pray and all of that, okay? How about getting rid of your phone, getting rid of your favorite things, okay? Learn, learn how to be, to suffer need for a while, okay? Learn how to be, learn how to meditate on scripture instead of flipping through social media, okay? See if you really can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, things that matter, things that are eternally significant in your life. It, it doesn't sound like I'm over that, but I am. I am over that. And I haven't seen that verse pop up on our sports shirts. Have you guys that have been at Calvary? Philippians 4.13. You can't little bit have a verse on your shirt. It either was there or it wasn't. Philippians 4.12 and a half. Speaking of biblical literacy. All right. All right, good. Well, that's being full and hungry and abound and suffer need. So I like 12 and a half. That's good. All right. 14. Nevertheless... You have done well that you shared in my distress. Okay? Now, again, if you don't have the picture of Christ being all in all in, in Paul, this sounds arrogant. You did well to share in my distress. But Paul has sufficiency in Christ, and that's critical for his and our relationship with Jesus. That Jesus may not always remove our circumstance of suffering. He will be found to be enough in all of these times of need. He's going to shepherd you well. Yet our call to always be a, is to always be of assistance to others in their time of need. And that's not set aside by just saying Christ should be all sufficient for you. It's both and. God's way of sufficiency is often through other believers. Paul is going to praise the Philippian church because when he was raising money, they were the only ones that participated in that. And he celebrates them for it. God uses people to help people. <clears throat> we, are, we are a critical way God, God uses to comfort 
others and help others to persevere in their situation in life. Paul here says that the Philippians did well to share in his distress. Um, I shared this recently and I don't remember where, it might have been here, but uh, I remember early on in my ministry days, very early on, um, it's with uh, Pastor Tom Crenshaw, some of you know, um, and he and I were asked to visit a family who the dad had just passed, um, and then, no, I'm sorry, the grandpa just passed, and hours later, the dad passed. So father and son-in-law passed within hours, and this family's got the grief of it all. And he and I were asked to go visit their home, and I'm very new to this, and he's quite seasoned in this. So as we're driving there, I said, what are we going to say? What do we say? Something like this. He says, I don't have any idea. And I'm thinking, what's the point of years and years of ministry if you don't know what to say? But he looked at me and he said, we're only going there to weep. We're not going there to talk. We're going to weep with those who weep. We're just going to be there. And that spoke so richly to me. And I remember doing a memorial where... Um, the widow was not doing well at all. And she kept asking me days beforehand, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And thinking of what Pastor Tom taught me is they're sitting in the front row and I'm looking and the chapel is filled. The hall, the pews are filled. And I said to her, just please stand up and turn around. And I said, you've been asking me how you're going to do this. And I want you to see the support that you have. This is how you're going to do it. You're going to be surrounded by love and strength and comfort because that's God's method for doing this. And then when you're all by yourself, you're going to see there's a peace that goes beyond your understanding. You're going to tell the story of God's sufficiency in your life through this. It's going to be through them, and it's going to be through him using them, but you're going to have that story. That's what our relationship with Christ does. Fifteen. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you send aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift. See, here's where he's coming from with his, their care for him. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Okay. When you take care of me, I know what God does for you. And because I'm discipling you up to be able to be in the grace of God, you're going to receive more of that grace of God through your caring for me. Okay? How many of you believe that? Okay? Okay, so your giving results in your blessing. That's why I'm happy to serve you in that. And if you just want to leave money up here, I'll, I'll take it. Okay, because I'm looking for the fruit that abounds to your account on this. You don't believe me. Okay, all right. <laughs> Say that word in this church. All right. Now, Mark chapter 4, 13 to 20, I don't have time to read it, but I'll tell you that this fruit that abounds to your account, Jesus taught that the economy of God results in that when you are supporting others, the fruit that abounds from that, he says, is 30 or 60 or 100 times what you're doing. Okay? 
Now, if that became your motivation, then probably your heart is wrong and therefore you're not going to get that reward. But Jesus is simply teaching that you can't, um, you're not going to outserve or outgive God, right? You're not going to outserve or outgive God. When he sees what you're doing because you're supporting ministry and you're giving of your time and your talent and your treasure for the cause of Christ, the fruit that abounds. In other words, you, you tell one person about Jesus, you die and go to heaven, you're going to probably see 30 or 60 or 100 people that are going to heaven too because you spoke to that one. Okay, the fruit's going to abound in these um, exponential ways. Uh, verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. The guy's on death row. And what's he say? I have all and I abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. I'll just refer you to Ephesians 5.2, where Paul unpacks the sweet-smelling aroma a little bit. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, 1 through 7, uh, there's a couple things I want to point out there really quickly. Paul says this about this giving idea. He says, moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, listen to this, these people of Macedonia were in a great trial of affliction. But the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded. Okay? Their joy and their poverty abounded in the, riches, in the riches of their liberality. So even though they're experiencing deep poverty, they have a riches, richness in their generosity. This is, remember Jesus and the widow's mite? She gave the most because she gave almost 100% of what she had. Okay? Uh, riches of the liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. That's where it starts, generosity, first giving yourself to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, because you abound in those five things, he says, see that you abound in this grace also. What's the grace he wants them to abound in also? Generosity, their liberality, okay? Um, their giving to the ministry. All right, verse 19. And my God shall supply all your need. See why you should be generous? Are you, so when your story's done and told and your giving has been recorded, is it going to be that you supplied all your needs or that God supplied all your needs through Christ Jesus? Well, he's saying through this concept of generosity... God's going to supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. Can he afford to do that? It says, according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Okay, now, uh, I'll refer you to uh, Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26 on your own for an awesome testimony of how Moses considered 
riches, as we talk about riches, uh, where he learned that the afflictions of Christ are of greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. So if you saw the afflictions of Christ and the treasures of Egypt, which one would you see as greater wealth? Okay, Moses is in the Hall of Fame of Faith because he saw the afflictions of Christ as more wealth than the treasures of Egypt. There. Verse 20. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here Paul's closing with a doxology. I wanted you to know that he, his, when he talks about joy, Paul interrupts some of his own sentences in his letters with doxology, this praise to God. It's almost like he can't always say a paragraph without breaking into praise for God. Examples. Romans 1.25, the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Romans 9.5, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God, amen. Romans 11.36, to him be glory forever, amen. Romans 16.27, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever, amen. 1 Timothy 1.17, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. 1 Timothy 6.15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only pontinent, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. He can barely get a teaching about Christ out without breaking into doxology. Okay? Why? Because he knows him. I'm saying the more we know him, the more our hearts are going to be breaking out into doxology all the time. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Not in insincere ways, but literally you're breaking out in doxology. Okay? We're going by the guy who knew him, who met him, who was trained by him, who converted him miraculously. This guy can't help but breaking out into doxology. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. Okay, watch this sentence. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Caesar's household. Okay? I'm in jail, and guess what happened? <laughs> There's a whole bunch of soldiers saying, say hi to us from, from us too. And what does Paul call them? They're saints. They're saints now. Okay? You think they're happy Paul was willing to be locked up and all this stuff? Okay? And then I'm talking about them now, and they're probably listening. They're like, yeah, Paul called us saints. Like, you know, we'd have a duty. It'd be like, hey, it's your turn to be chained to the prisoner. Okay, chained to the prisoner. He can't go anywhere. This is the big mouth that keeps talking about his friend rose from the dead. Okay, now they're in eternal glory. And Paul says, you know, imagine being the Jews receiving this letter. They're going, especially of Caesar's household, the saints who are in Caesar's household. So you have Jew and Gentile in Caesar's house saved. What a glorious Caesar salad that is. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. I'm going to hear about that on the drive home. I know I am. All right. <laughs> All right. So here's another shot quote. Um, you can lock up God's saint, but you can't lock up God's spirit. He's in chains and people are getting saved. You can lock up the saint, you can't lock up God's spirit. Last verse, 23. Um, I'm going to do the teaching on the verse before I even read the verse. 
This is what it's all truly about. Here's the verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. What a great letter, huh? If you don't think so, I'm sorry I ruined it for you because it is a great, great, great letter. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, Lord, there's a joy that not, we haven't fully tapped into. There's a knowledge of you we haven't fully tapped into. Lord, there's a peace that goes way beyond our understanding that not even the thoughts of death can interrupt, Lord. And Lord, we just pray to step closer to you, Lord, to your love, to your light, to your grace. Lord, we pray that we could know you like Paul where even our own death would just be super exciting to get to know you and to see you face to face. And Lord, may you always be the reason why we want heaven. So God, may every life in this room that's watching online serve your eternal purposes in their life. Help us to walk straight in line with you, forsaking the temptations of the world, holding fast to our confession, holding fast to our faith, through thick and thin, in Jesus' name.